0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Episode 63, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is just me. I thought there was a good opportunity to have another solo episode, and today we're going to focus on nurse practitioners, physician's assistants, and basically the mid-level provider controversy that exists within medicine. I will provide more definitions later in the episode once we get into the heart of things. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. If you want to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash theparadox. There, all donations are used for the production and promotion of the show and are greatly appreciated and provide me encouragement to keep going with the show. I also encourage you to visit the website at theparadox.com where you can find the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 064. But also you can sign up to receive email alerts whenever I post some new blog or podcast. Generally, for the emails have just been alerting you that there's a podcast, but it's an opportunity to go to the actual show notes page and provide comments and also email me with any show ideas that you would find of interest and that we could possibly do in the future. I'd also like to make another plug For my good friend, Ed Spires at madesimply.com, Ed has done a wonderful job with my wife's website at andysmom.com, which is the podcast that she launched about uh, six weeks ago or so now. He and his team provide very affordable, clean, slick websites for all the small organizations. If you had your own podcast you're launching, if you had a small business you wanted to start, it's a great way to inexpensively get your feet off the ground. They'll also help you walk through to show you how to do blog posts, post your podcast. In my wife's case, and it's just a great organization. And I think that you'll find Ed a very easy person to speak to, and someone who understands exactly what people need, and he will be able to provide those services. I'm also excited that if you're listening to this about when it's released date, I will be heading in a couple of days to the Hillsdale College Free Market Forum, where we'll discuss free market ideas and all of the economy, I suppose, including healthcare. And I will have the opportunity to meet one of my favorite podcasters, Michael Troy, who is the host of the American Revolution podcast. Which, if you're not listening to the American Revolution podcast and you have any interest in the American Revolution and history, you should absolutely listen to. In depth, 20 minutes a week. I think he's up to episode 130 or so. I'm probably off by quite a bit there. Uh, but he discusses in depth one, two, sometimes a week, sometimes a few days just depends on the situation, but it is a great history of the United States before it even declared independence, and then certainly the Revolutionary War. At this point, he's still in 1776, and I think he probably has, I'm guessing, two or three years before he finishes the war. That can be found on any podcast player at the American Revolution. But without further ado, let's begin our discussion of the mid-level providers, nurse practitioners, and the controversy that is brewing and has been ongoing for some time in medicine. In fact, I think the controversy has been ongoing for long before I began practicing medicine and has won something of a scope of practice. But again, we'll get into that in just a moment because I want to set up the background and give people definitions of what we're talking about because I think for the most part, unless you're someone in medicine or know someone personally who is of a certain profession that we're going to discuss today, you're probably not going to have a very good idea of exactly what the problem is. So specifically, what is a nurse practitioner? What is a physician's assistant? What is a physician? What is a nurse anesthetist, and an anesthesiologist assistant? What is a podiatrist, a dentist, an optometrist versus an ophthalmologist, a psychiatrist versus a psychologist? And so I think these are all things that are very important because you need to understand what the different roles are so that you can get a better idea for the fundamental issues that are driving these debates that you'll see on Twitter, you'll see them on Facebook, you'll see people concerned about their profession. I've had a friend of mine who is a counselor and he was very concerned because his career was at risk because of regulatory change that happened at the state government level. And so these things occur all the time, but I just want you to have a better idea for what they are. So we'll start with the definitions. So, what is a physician? Well, a physician is a, either an MD or a DO traditionally. And that means you're an allopathic, which is MD, or osteopathic DO. Uh, traditionally, the difference has been primarily that the DOs tend to deal more in some manipulative uh, physical things, like we might consider sort of chiropractor um, techniques. So, um, it's using, it's basically a physician who is able to also you know, crack your back, to use probably the most crude terminology. Over time, the osteopathic and allopathic courses have sort of merged, and you see a lot more integration of the different specialties. There was a time not long ago when you would see there's a divide between the two physician types, but you're seeing a lot more merging now within groups. There used to be hospitals that were primarily osteopathic hospitals versus allopathic hospitals. Most university programs were allopathic, the MD designation, And so that's sort of a medical doctor as opposed to doctor osteopathy. Uh, But essentially, nowadays, they're pretty much the same. There are still different governing national boards. There's the American Medical Association. There's the American Osteopathic Association. But for the most part, their political and professional interests tend to align more. And so you'll see them, especially in groups, uh, and sort of the opportunities for residency training really merging, and there's not being as much of a difference between the two I think in general, probably on the margins, you'd say it's probably a little bit harder getting to an allopathic school than it's an osteopathic school. But even that is somewhat changed, and there's probably enough variation within the schools to make it really difficult to decide you know, who would have been a better undergraduate student. But I think it's important to, to focus on the training required for a physician. So physicians have to get a bachelor's degree in something. Uh, there's To get into medical school, you have to pass the MCAT test, you have to have a certain grade point average and all those, you know, the usual sort of things you need to graduate school. And that depends on what school you're trying to apply to, obviously. Uh, You need to have the bachelor's degree. You have to usually have prerequisites, which are generally the same, but there's some differences. You know, some schools require a little more biology or biochemistry or, you know, anatomy or something like that. But for the most part, they have general prerequisites that you have to perform at school. Personally, I was not on the medical track initially, so I had to take some summer classes to just pick up some biochemistry and biology course that I'd not gotten during my engineering uh, classes. Uh, And so once you finish your medical school, which is four years traditionally, uh, you then go to specialty training. Specialty trainings are for the primary care are oftentimes three years, and then it's any sort of length of time beyond that. So it could be three, four, five, six, I think seven years for some. And the Especially, it's just dependent on what it is. If you're doing a surgical specialty, they tend to be a little bit longer. And then you can subspecialize even within your specialty by taking a fellowship. And so you may hear people who are fellowship trained. That means they're specializing in some various aspect, hyper focused within their specialty. In anesthesia, for instance, you could do cardiothoracic, so you would do you know heart and lung surgeries. You could do neurosurgery. Oh, it's not quite as common, but pediatric is sort of the other common one. So you're dealing with the you know the really tiny babies. And the uh, premature infants and children with complicated congenital disease of either the heart or lungs or you know brain or whatever. Uh, other specialties obviously do that too. You can pediatrics, if you want to be a pediatric gastroenterologist or a pediatric neurologist or a pediatric pulmonologist, or if you're any sort of the medicine specialties, which is probably far more common if you're looking for fellowship trained people, like a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist or a nephrologist. All these people are medicine trained which so just three years and they have fellowship training beyond that which is a few years where they learn the various sub specialty training necessary for like you know if you're a cardiologist you learn about the heart uh, certainly if you can subspecialize even further that's with the fellowships even on top of that other fellowship you may do it in electrophysiology so you just look at the heart rhythm disturbances and ways to treat that with ablations and things like that so anyway there are thousands if not oftentimes tens of thousands of hours of training that go into medical school also, with medical school, at being a physician, you are basically trained in the identification, so the and diagnosis, and the treatment of disease. Uh, you obviously have to recognize what normal is, because if you don't know what normal is, you don't know what abnormal is. Uh, and then you figure out how to treat it, you know, whatever it is that your specialty is that you're in. Uh, and so that is a different sort of track and a different sort of focus of your training and your education than what we're going to talk about next. So we'll talk next about what are known colloquially as mid-level providers, or physician extenders Maybe another way you hear this. These are people who are trained to assist or work within the confines of a care team or in some way as an extension of physician's capability. So you may hear the term physician's assistant. You might hear a nurse practitioner, a nurse anesthetist, a anesthesiologist assistant, uh, even athletic trainers are to some extent this broad group of people who are involved in the care of patients. It's important to recognize, too, that these various providers of care, and I do not like using the term provider, but it actually fits in this sense, uh, all have different backgrounds. And their backgrounds are critical to understanding what their roles are in medicine afterwards. And it's also important to understand who the regulatory bodies are that set the rules and regulations for these specialists within their, their concurrent states. And these are fairly consistent as far as who governs the licensing process and the scope of practice. So again, I just threw out another term, and so let me just define that briefly. Scope of practice is what you are and are not allowed to do under your license within the state. So every state has their own boards that license. They have various requirements for maintaining your licensure, whether it's continuing medical education credits, whether it's a certain basic level of training, uh, certification, uh, whatnot. Uh, This does vary from state to state. States are trying to sort of standardize requirements to some extent from state to state, but they're all still unique requirements that each state has. I'm in the state of Michigan, and Michigan requires 150 continued medical education credits for your medical license every three years. That is unusual. That's unusually high. Many states are not nearly that much, and so, you know, if you're in a different state, you just have to do less. So anyway, uh, the Board of Medicine is the one that's in charge of medical licensing and the rules and regulations. And if someone has a problem, a violation of their ethics or uh, criminal background or something like that, or they are brought before the board for um, disciplinary action, they go to the Board of Medicine. For nurses, it's the Board of Nursing. They're separate boards within the state's regulatory entities, and so they have different Opinions on what a nurse should be or what a physician should be, depending on which board you go between. Before, uh, for physicians' assistants, they actually fall under the medicine board. For nurse anesthetists, it'd be the nursing board. Nurse practitioners, obviously, nurse board too. And anesthesiologist assistants and others are usually on the medical board. And so what that does is you have physicians who generally serve on the medical board for the most part, and you have nurses for the most part serving on the nursing boards. Every state sort of designates who serves on these boards, but generally people who are within the profession and are familiar with the careers. Uh, And so they have their own biases and their own expectations and their own sort of understanding what the profession should be and what the limitations and the balances of the practice for that particular designation you might have. And so much of what the discussion we're going to have today is actually over scope of practice. What is and is not allowed by these state licensure boards and what this means for patients, for those who have those professional designations, and sort of everybody else, as far as the politicians and the lobbyists, the hospital associations, everyone else. And so, scope of practice is at the heart of it, but I want to get the definition of who we're talking about first. So the best way to understand who these people are, I talked about physicians and the level of training. Let's now talk about nurse practitioners. So first of all, when people think say doctor, they generally think of, at least in a hospital setting, of a doctor of medicine. Now, also dentists, Are called doctors. You have podiatrists who are called doctors. You have optometrists who can be referred to as doctors as well. So, doctors is somewhat of a loose term. We obviously know people who are in professors at universities are also doctors. You have your doctorate in history or philosophy or economics, whatever. And so, they are also doctors. Although, I would say that if you were a doctor of economics and you were in a hospital, you would certainly expect people to refer to you as doctor, but you would not walk into someone, some patient's room, and saying, "I'm doctor so and so. I'm here to take care of you. you," because the expectation is that if you're a doctor, you are one of these sort of usual doctors that are going to take care of people in the in a hospital setting, a physician, or uh, if someone, you know, they're looking at your teeth, that's a dentist. For the same reason, you would expect a dentist to, to introduce themselves as a doctor so and so. I'm going to take you back for surgery, unless, of course, they're working in oral surgery. <laughs> and so. There are certain expectations patients have that I think if you are not describing it that way, I think is a little bit deceptive. Others may not feel that way. And yes, there is, it's absolutely true that if you have a doctorate in your name, you are, I suppose, legally or ethically are allowed to be described as a doctor, but you're probably being, at least on a, some level, a little disingenuous in who you are. Certainly when describing yourself to most patients, unless they know you and they know your your background, but... I think it's fairly obvious that dating your doctor when you're not a, a medical doctor or one of these other ones who are traditionally those as doctors like dentists and podiatrists, that is probably be, again, a little disingenuous. But let's talk about nurse practitioners first. Uh, there are, of course, doctors of nurse practitioner, and so this is sort of what I'm getting at, the people who will call themselves doctor when, you know, by all traditional means, they would no one would consider a nurse a doctor. It uh, doesn't mean that they can't perform certain things, and it's certainly within the scope of practice in the states, depending on the state, on how much they can, they can administer medications and whether, how much they can treat. So a nurse practitioner, there's a, a wide variety of ways one can become a nurse practitioner. You have to be a nurse first, obviously, and that means you have to be RN, which is, means registered nurse. You Then you have to get a bachelor's in science nursing, a BSN. That's a, usually a university program. And there's a master's that you have to get. And then from there, you can be a nurse practitioner. There are generally different specialties within nurse practitioner school. You can be a family practice, there's pediatric, acute care, geriatric. And I think the specialties are sort of increasing as time goes on, as people are seeing the value of having more nurse practitioners to help treat people uh, with their illness. Now, in comparison to the training for to be a physician, uh, it is much less training, obviously. It's generally about a 1,000 hours of training uh, to be a nurse practitioner. Uh, This can also be done online, and there are a wide variety, I say, I think is a safe way of saying, of people who become nurse practitioners in their level of training expertise when they come into the designation of nurse practitioner. There are some nurse practitioners who have spent 20 years in a nephrology clinic, let's say, you know, treating kidney diseases with a physician. They go to get their especially training in geriatrics, and then become a nurse practitioner and go and serve in that same nephrology clinic. And they have a vast knowledge of kidney disease and their understanding. And so it's easy for them to transition. It's easy for them to be more effective. They've learned more diagnostic skills, which they did not have before. Because as a nurse, you do not learn diagnostic skills. There are diagnostic aspects to your job, recognizing disease, knowing how to treat things. Any doctor will tell you they there's all the time who are catching things that are mistakes made by physicians, uh, ordering medication or treatment, and you're like, is that right? I think this person might have this or that or the other thing. Yours uh, are oftentimes wrong. Physicians are oftentimes wrong. Everybody's wrong lots of times, and that's why you have all sorts of different eyes on you to take care of people, and that's what's very helpful about any sort of team of medicine. Uh, just like we rely on pharmacists to catch mistakes, we catch mistakes for pharmacy Everybody tries to catch mistakes from each other to try and treat patients the best way uh, possible. As far as the amount of training required, aside from the 1,000 hours of training for the nurse practitioners, uh, they also have a certain amount of time, classes, coursework that's required. If you go straight from like a BSN to a doctor nurse practitioner, it's about three to four years. For From a master's level, of, it's about one to two years. That's a general amount. Uh, the cost varies significantly from seven thousand dollars or a little bit more per year in in cost to two thousand dollars just depends what program you go to and it can be much more than that as well depending on if you have more or less online coursework obviously the cost is different Uh, for a physician assistant it's a two year program which is a year of didactic or classroom stuff and then a year of clinicals where you sort of see everything and then you go get a job and you go serve in some sort of field. Now maybe you're interested in surgery, maybe you're interested in outpatient, maybe you're interested in ER. But either way, you go into those fields and you really have a basic level of education and knowledge of medicine, some diseases, uh, normal physiology, those sorts of things. And then you will learn more specialty training as you just practice. And you practice under the supervision of physicians. The same goes for nurse practitioners. They're very similar in that sense in that you have very basic Levels of training, not generally specially specific, because for instance, if you were a pediatric nurse practitioner, your training is probably in basic well child checks. It's oftentimes actually very difficult to find clinical rotations. I know a number of nurse practitioners who have a real struggle finding places that are willing to train nurse practitioners uh, or nurses to become nurse practitioners. And so your exposure is very limited, and it's oftentimes very difficult to get really good mentoring. And the basic expectation is that when you go out into practice, when you start working for someone else, that's when you learn sort of how to do it. Now, depending on your level of experience prior to that, you're going to have a bigger knowledge base of sort of how things work. And so, again, like my previous example, if you had 20 years experience in a clinic with a nephrologist dealing with kidney disease and you go work in a kidney clinic, you're going to be very valuable. You're going to be able to help treat people and diagnose and recognize things a lot better than someone who's never had any experience in a nephrology clinic. Uh, Likewise, if you have a lot of experience in a nephrology clinic and then you go and work and become a pediatric nurse practitioner and you go to the congenital heart clinic, you're not going to be very much help uh, initially. You'll have to have a lot of training, a lot of understanding of totally new physiology, new ways to treat patients, new how to diagnose things, how to deal with families, all those sorts of things. Because what physicians learn in the front end in their training, especially training, basically you're trying to learn in the back end as a nurse practitioner but you're not learning in the same way as a physician with the levels of call, responsibilities, et cetera, and your initial diagnostic skills were not formulated in your initial training, which for a physician was obviously medical school. For nurses, they were in nursing school. It is a different focus, which is fine. It's just different. And so I think you just need to recognize that they're different. The advantage of being a nurse practitioner or being a physician assistant is that your ability to move from different professions is real. Like if you go to a nephrology clinic and you decide that it's just not what you enjoy, you can take your degree and you can go to anywhere else. I mean, there's some limitations if you're a pediatric nurse practitioner. You can't go to a geriatric clinic easily. I mean, usually most state laws don't prevent that. uh, But certainly, you're going to feel less comfortable. The clinics might be less likely to hire you. But you have the ability within your license to go do really whatever you want as far as specialties. And so you'll very frequently see a PA who leaves neurosurgery, just the schedule's not right, and they'll go to, say, orthopedic surgery or they go to urology or they go to something else. Or maybe they'll just leave entirely and just go to, like, you know, the ER or an outpatient clinic because life demands change, families or whatever. Uh, You have a lot of that flexibility that you don't have as a physician. For instance, if I wanted to not practice anesthesia, it'd be very difficult for me to just go and start you know practicing something else like nephrology i mean i have to really go to a residency training i'd have to go do a fellowship training i would not be competent and i would not be have any ability to actually practice in that way it does not mean that my scope license practice would not allow it in the sense that i could probably open up a clinic but no one would come see me because i would and no one would refer any patients to me because i wouldn't be any good and so hospitals would not even grant any privileges to me to allow me to practice nephrology in their hospital if I had no prior training, no residency training, no fellowship training. They would rightly see that as a bad idea, and so I would not be allowed to do it. So for many, the nurse practitioner route, the physician assistant route is a very smart one. You make quite a bit of money, not as much as a physician, but you have a lot more flexibility in where you want to go. And the same could be said for RNs as well. And for nurses, they can move from different floors, they can move to different jobs, they can move to entirely different um, specialties within the hospital, uh, from you know OB to outpatient surgery to suddenly, I don't know, the the floor or maybe the ICU. And you just need to have a level of training, orientation, and usually that can be you know, three to six months, but then you're sort of able to transition to something entirely different if you want. Just briefly mentioned, nurse anesthetists, they also have... They also start as nurses. They become usually have to have some sort of level of acute care um, experience uh, for most programs, whether that's in a recovery room, the PACU, or if it's in the ICU. Uh, and then they then go to school, learn the anesthesia trade craft, uh, and then they will go out into practice where they usually work under the uh, direction of a physician, usually an anesthesiologist, but not necessarily always. Uh, there are some states, a number of states, I think 18 or so, that allow them to operate independently. And uh, again, that varies from state to state. anesthesiologist assistants are more rare than a nurse anesthetist, but they are essentially people who have earned their master's degree in anesthesia school. They generally have more training hours uh, than a nurse anesthetist in their training programs, uh, but they don't have the medical background that a nurse that a nurse anesthetist will have as an RN some of them do, and some RNs go to AA school, but it's more uncommon, and it's more common for uh, RNs to go to become a certified registered nurse anesthetist, a CRNA. The difference, of course, with the a- CRNA and the AA is the anesthesiologist assistant is under the medical board, and they have to be working under the, su- under the supervision and the direction of an anesthesiologist, which is why they are called anesthesiologist assistants. Nurse anesthetist can be under any physician. Generally, it's an anesthesiologist, but not always. And so that is a different designation. They're also under a different board within the state regulatory committee, either the nursing board versus a, which would be under the medical board. That makes a big difference. We talk about scope of practice in just a moment. So the next important thing to know is what difference does it make having a physician versus a nurse practitioner versus a PA taking care of you? What is the difference in outcomes and cost, et cetera? And these you'll see studies that vary all over the board. And, and I think uh, it, it's best to think about this in terms of the bell curve of skill, knowledge, what have you. I think it's a lot like describing the difference very generally and men and women. Who's stronger? Well, you could say, well, men are stronger than women, but you can definitely find plenty of women who are stronger than men. I mean, you know, any 20 year old woman is going to be stronger than any 80 year old man. And there are many 20 year old women who are stronger than 20 year old men. But in general, if you looked at a bell curve or whatever, and you said, who's stronger? Well, invariably, it would be men who are stronger uh, than women. Uh, Other things you could make the same example of. So to say, who is more accurately diagnosed and treat some disease? Well, you'd say, well, it's going to be the one who's a subspecialist in exactly that sort of disease that the patient's presenting with. For instance, I could probably look at someone and say, Hmm, I think you might have a corneal abrasion, which is you know, scratching your eye. But it'd be much better for an ophthalmologist to come and say, and actually do the exam, and they know all the you know ins and outs of corneal abrasions, and they're going to say, oh, this is definitely what this is. And you might even have someone who's fellowship training cornea. So they specialize in the cornea. They're probably even better than a general ophthalmologist in diag- making this diagnosis. It doesn't mean that any of us are not capable of making that diagnosis, but just simply that your levels of training, your level of expertise, is more capable of making that diagnosis and treating it effectively than the person with less training and experience. That's pretty simply what it is. And so if you're comparing a nurse practitioner to a physician in general, a physician is going to be more capable and better at making these diagnoses and making the treatment plans more appropriately. It does not mean that every physician is going to be better than every nurse uh, practitioner. It doesn't mean that they will always be that way. They always, probably usually, and other margins you're going to have people intersecting, that people are really good and people are really bad who cross. And, and it's hard for me to say exactly where that line is and how many people are much better than others. All I can say is that it makes no sense to make an assertion that someone with more training, more diagnostic skills, someone whose training was specifically for diagnosis and treatment of disease, would be overall worse than people who aren't now does it mean people who aren't can't treat effectively and make diagnostic decisions absolutely not there are plenty of patients who come in who know exactly what's wrong with them because they look it up online and they can kind of figure things out it's not like there's anything special about medicine except that your levels of experience allow you to recognize normal better to recognize levels of disease and if you see the right person at the right time you're gonna be more likely to make the appropriate diagnosis than the lay person or someone who has less training again it doesn't mean that they're always the treatment of every physician is going to be always better than a nurse practitioner, but you probably could say safely, in general, they would be better. I don't think this is particularly controversial, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who are nurse practitioners or other mid-level providers, and I don't even really like that term, who would disagree with this comment. I don't see how you can deny that that is the case. I think it's the case for any specialty in any sort of profession, and it's not specific to medicine. It's much more likely that someone who deals with F one cars, as my son would be very excited if I was talking about F one racing cars, who is a mechanic and services those cars, is going to be much more qualified and much better at diagnosing problems with that, that sort of car than just a general mechanic. It doesn't mean the general mechanic couldn't sometimes come to the right diagnosis and be a, and be able to fix the car. It just means, in general, for that specialty, that person who is specializes in that in that specific problem is going to be much better at fixing it. Just like a general mechanic is going to be much better than the lay guy in his garage. It doesn't mean the guy in the garage can't ever get the diagnosis right of what's wrong with the car and fix it adequately. And maybe some of them are, with years of experience, are actually better than a mechanic in a garage. Entirely possible. But you'd say in general, it's much more likely you're going to find someone who's going to be able to treat your problem with your car in a a garage who's gone to classes, who's done courses, who's seen and worked on cars for thousands of hours and did lots of training than the guy in his driveway. Again, not always, but in general, it's probably safe to say that's the case. Just like someone who's wiring a house, someone who's doing plumbing, there are all sorts of trades and professions. There are all sorts of things that the lay public may know, but they don't know it as well as a specialist, usually. And the key is usually. And the problem with most of these debates that people have online, especially in 240 characters on Twitter, is that you're unable to make nuanced arguments you're not allowed to have discussions it is always a binary better or worse and it is not always that way and i think that's really important for people to recognize i don't pretend to, that i'm the best anesthesiologist in the world i don't even wouldn't even go to venture far to say that i'm better than every nurse anesthetist i think that'd be a foolish thing to say For one thing i could know it but also i don't know it's just hubris <laughs> but But I think it's important to recognize that probably in general, your care might be better than someone who has less training than you. But someone who's got 30 more years experience is probably going to be better, I'm guessing, even if they're a nurse anesthetist, they have less initial training than probably someone coming straight out of residency training in anesthesiology. I'm just guessing. But again, it just depends on the person. So that being said, it's important to recognize there's nuance here. And the problem with medicine, aside, aside from the fact that Social media is the morass that it is, where you're only able to say yes or no, or we're better or worse. There's never any nuance. Is the problem in medicine, is there's even less nuance allowed in the discussion? There is regulatory capture. There's scope of practice. So scope of practice is important to recognize because that is what you are allowed to do under the law. You have to get a license for most people who are operating within the medical field, whether it's a speech pathologist, whether it's a psychiatrist, whether it's an orthopedic surgeon, whether it's a, you know a physical therapist, all these people are licensed under the law in most states. How they're governed, what they're allowed to do, really varies. And so like I said, there are some states where you're allowed to practice independently, where other states, people who are the physician extenders, let's call them, they actually have to operate under the direction of a physician or some other person who's got more experience. For instance, uh, one common dispute you'll hear are between opticians, optometrists, and ophthalmologists. Now, ophthalmologists are physicians. Optometrists are doctors in optometry. And And then you have opticians. These are people who fit you for glasses. And so what people are allowed to do varies from state to state. And generally, it's a scope of practice battle. So you have the opticians who say, Hey, we can use this machine that automatically diagnoses my someone's prescription. And so why can't I use that machine? Just, you know, have them look into the thing and tells you what the, you know, their 2040 vision, whatever, they've got astigmatism. Why do they have to use optometrists? And the optometrist will object and say, that's ridiculous. There's so much stuff that you need to know to fit someone to diagnose what someone's vision is, that it's it's outrageous that you'd let someone who has very little training as an opti- optician to, you know, fit someone for glasses and actually figure out the lens and the, the refraction they have. Likewise, there are optometrists, plenty of one, who say, why can't I use an, a LASIK machine and operate? I mean, it's pretty much automated. I can, they just make the cuts automatically. I don't have to do anything. I just have to make sure that if you do a vision exam before and after, why should only ophthalmologists have the uh, right to use, do LASIK surgery for uh, surgical correction for nearsightedness? And depending on the state, there are different lines that are drawn which is allowable and not allowable the federal government occasionally gets involved but not often likewise you'll find places where podiatrists are allowed to operate on more than feet i mean most people think podiatrists operate on only feet but some place states they allow them to operate in knees and they can fight to try and operate in hips because it's the lower extremity and so you can see how this line blurs and then of course they have these battles in the their the legislatures and with the regulatory rule bodies with generally the physicians or whoever is who has more ability to operate wherever. <laughs> and, so, and so these scope of practice laws and battles happen all the time. And so it's, it's more prevalent in medicine simply because there's, it's highly regulated. There's so many people who are certified and licensed that there are always these battles going on. So what's happening today is not in any way unique to what's been going on for the last 20, 30 years or whatever, 50 years probably obviously there are more people who are licensed than in the past and that does not just specifically mean medicine but again medicine has the most people who are licensed probably of any profession or industry i will say i think it's important to note who comes up with licensing laws and who comes up with scope of practice i serve on the michigan state medical society board regulations legislation so we i see Legislation that's related to medicine or regulation, regulatory changes that come up before the the state, and you know how's the medical society going to respond? So you know we obviously represent physicians, and so there are physician interests and patient you know safety concerns, those things. Um, and what's very interesting is every year we have various boards who want to form to form new licensing schemes. These are never launched by the lay public. They're never launched by an interest group outside of groups that are looking to prevent others from entering the market so you'll see a holistic medicine board that wants to form and so we only want to allow people who to practice and call themselves holistic doctors as people who have done training at you know university xyz or whatever they're they're not universities but schools and so they want to have licensing boards that prevent other people from calling themselves doctor of homeopathy or doctor of naturopathy and you might think it's kind of crazy. Maybe you think that's not crazy. It's always under the guise of patient protection, and there's probably some validity to that, I suppose, that people might be doing totally crazy things that are just outside the range of what any sort of normal naturopath or the practitioner would do. Uh, but it's important to recognize that these, this legislation and these licensing schemes are always brought forth by some sort of professional organization that is looking to create some sort of board to prevent others from entering the market and in order to get, gather themselves more credibility so that they can then bill insurance companies and to get in sort of part of the medical action, right? So if the chiropractors have their own board, the med, uh, medical physicians have their own board, everybody has their own board for, uh, for licensing. In order to get accredited so you can get paid for things by third-party payers. And as I said, to prevent others from entering that market. So you'll see campaigns from professional organizations that will come up with studies saying patients prefer this, patients prefer that. It's been shown that XYZ specialties are just as effective as treating as physicians or as optometrists or whatever. And you'll see all these studies that come out, which are sponsored by you know, whatever society it is, and, or they'll say we're less expensive, or, you know, outcomes are better even. The problem is these studies have a tough time getting a control group. For instance, if you're trying to make the argument that someone is, gets better care or just as good care using your specialty, you know, like let's say nurse practitioner said, well, nurse practitioner care is just as good as physician care, and, you know, we're a lot cheaper. Well, that would only work if you could have some sort of setting, in which case they weren't totally working independently. But that doesn't exist in most places. And so it's only a supposition that they are actually just as good. When everywhere they're practicing, they're practicing under the direction of a physician on some level. And so it's hard to say, well, of course the outcomes are better, you know, or the same, because it's sort of the same situation. I mean, I guess they're working in one place, maybe the other place they're not working at all. And so you could compare those. But maybe you could say, well, that's just because there's a physician directing the care or sort of organize the clinic or whatever, or, you know, there's there to bounce ideas off of. And so you're able to get pretty much the same level of care, whether you have nurse practitioners or not. And so it's really hard for these studies, I think, to prove anything. important to remember that correlation does not necessarily mean causation. And so these sorts of controversies will persist, and they will continue to churn out these studies because it is in their financial interest for these organizations to put these studies out. So here we get to the crux of the problem. Why does it matter? Why do we really care what nurse practitioners can do, why, what physicians can do, what optometrists can do, all the scope of practicing? Why do we really care? Is it because of patient safety? To some extent. I think there are people who have legitimate concerns that their patient's safety is worse if you have people with less training taking care of you. And again, I think on the margins, it's probably true to some extent. For the person who's healthy comes in, outcomes probably don't matter a whole lot and if someone comes in for a cold, it probably doesn't matter who treats them. I mean anyone can treat that. The question is are you gonna be the person who's gonna be recognized when it's not actually a cold or whatever it might be, and to miss a bigger diagnosis that's gonna cause more expensive treatment or misdiagnosis or inadequate treatment uh, that will then lead to real harm from a patient. And that's the argument always made. And so that balance is a tricky one to make and I'm not gonna be here to tell you which what's the best way to sort of organize healthcare, except to say that I think it's important that the patient decides. And right now, the patients are not in control. CMS, the Center for Medicaid, Medicare Services, set most of the regulatory rules and expectations for private insurance, which then follow. The state, for service administered by someone who is not a physician, who is one of these other designations, is 85%, unless they're under the Incident to, quote-unquote, which means if they're used in... Some clinic or some basis where they can say what well, they were in consultation with the physician, or you know, in a clinic or whatever, then they can receive the full disbursement of funding. So, you can go see a nurse practitioner or a PA or you know, whoever, and you get the clinic gets one hundred percent of the pay. If there's a physician somewhere around who's someone organizing things, maybe they review the charge closely, maybe they actually see the patient, maybe they don't, but you get a, they get one hundred percent of the reimbursement for that. For CMS, most insurance companies follow the same rules, not all of them, but most of them. And so it's very interesting that even, and even at worst, you get 85% if you're operating independently, and this does happen in some places. So you can see from a health savings standpoint, from an institutional standpoint, there's a tremendous advantage for having people who are cheaper, right? You have nurse practitioners, you have PAs, you have essentially people with less training. They're paying significantly less in fees to get their training and their degrees and so their expectation for return on that is much lower so naturally you're going to have as many of these people as you can to take care of patients and worst case scenario you get 85 percent of the reimbursement if you have a physician somewhere around you get 100 of the reimbursement so it's to your advantage to have people with less training less experience generally speaking taking care of patients this is not just confined to large medical systems You'll see this in a small clinic as well. Physicians are inc- are encouraged, incentivized financially, to have other people who are there providing care for their patients who have less training, because they're less expensive to staff as than a, finding another partner who's a physician. The downside is, of course, is whether patients are okay with that, and you know the way the how well the practitioners practice, and if they're very good at it or bad at it. You also have to train someone to learn how to do it, and they may not stick around. It's, they're an employee. And they don't have the same incentives in general for the survival and the, of the practice. And so those are all considerations one has to make when hiring people. But essentially, the people who are pushing for nurse practitioners, for physician assistants, and other people to be in these clinics are pretty much anyone who can financially get incentivized from this, which are independent physicians, employed physician groups, hospital systems, and, of course, the professionals themselves. The people who are not advocating for this sort of practice are generally patients. Now, I don't think patients are necessarily opposed to nurse practitioners and physician assistants, but they're not given really a choice. And this is the part where I think we see the the crux of the problem. President Trump recently signed an executive order which will change the reimbursement patterns for other practitioners. So, it's direct regulatory rule changes in CMS to reimburse fully, regardless of the training of a certain practitioner. So, this means the nurse practitioners can bill at 100%. It no longer matters if there's a physician involved in the care. They're not allowed to charge less. And this is the real problem, this issue, because fundamentally, the patients are not involved in the selection, the payment, of these practitioners, whether it's a physician, whether it's a nurse practitioner, whether it's a physician assistant. Everyone's fighting over the dollars that are coming from the federal government, generally speaking, because the federal government sets the regulatory rules, and so usually the private insurers follow along at some point, soon or a while after. And so if the decision is made to pay everybody the same no matter the level of training, there is no reason to have people with more training taking care of people, except to provide better care. But from a corporate standpoint, from a payment standpoint, there is no incentive to do this. Now, you won't find a single administrator anywhere in the America who will say this. They will all deny this and say that's not possible. You'll have physician groups that will say there's absolutely no reason we'd sacrifice our care or patients' safety, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, by having people who are less qualified, less trained to take care of people. But I guarantee you, this is the natural result of this. Now, that being said, I want to again reiterate the nuance of this argument that yes, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, other people with other levels of training that's different from a physician, can adequately take care of patients some of the time, most of the time, almost all the time, sure. I don't deny that. And I don't deny that they may be better than physicians at times. But on the margins, they're going to have less training and you're gonna have more things missed you can have more diagnostic tests run because people don't have as much experience in recognizing disease patterns and they might need more help in trying to figure things out. And this is, I think, pretty well established that their utilization of tests and laboratories and things like that is a little bit higher for people with less levels of training. That goes for residents who are learning because they don't know what's going on. So they just like, order a bunch of tests and maybe some of the answer will sort of pop out at us. But this is coming. And the important thing to r- recognize is why this battle's happening. And what can you as a patient, or you as a physician, or you as a middle-level provider, what does this mean for you? I you know, it depends on your perspective, I suppose. But fundamentally, a better way to solve this problem would be to have people have control over their healthcare sp- expenditures. This means that you can decide if you want to go see someone who has less training. If you have a great relationship, you find a great nurse practitioner, a great physician assistant. Why don't you see them? And you can pay less or pay the same. I don't care. Why can't you pay different amounts for different levels of physician care? A lousy physician should make as much as a good physician. Now, maybe you could say, well, you know, referral patterns, et cetera. If you're lousy, you're not getting as many patients sent your way, but you're still getting paid the same for the same procedure or the same clinic type visit, no matter if you're good or bad. This is not a good way to run any sort of system. We don't have anything else in our economy that runs this way that's not controlled by the government. And I don't want to pick on the government specifically, but there's really no other way for the government to handle this, but it's just not a good way for making decisions and for way, deciding payments and to decide how things run. Now, from a government standpoint, there's probably no other way to do it because you can't discriminate adequately on the quality, really, they try, but it's not very good, uh, to the quality and the care that's provided by someone. And you know what's good for one person may be terrible for another person but there are no individual tastes there's no individuality allowed in our in the system If there's not a market and there is not a market in medicine for most things that's the assumption the assertion I should say that there is any sort of free market or any market system in medicine is crazy there is very little market there is some but very limited and the ability to shift things around resources around and to try and decide who's going to care for people, and how much you're going to get paid is really limited. And this is one of the fundamental problems with medicine right now in the United States. I think it probably in some level it's similar everywhere else in the world because governments are increasingly designed to control how spending occurs or how much visits cost or how much some procedures do in order to save costs or to try and standardize treatment or whatever. The problem is you can't do that well in a market any better than if you than if you're the government to try and do this in any other sort of aspect, of you care if they were trying to regulate the cost of bananas and green beans and corn or carburetors or motor oil, it would be very difficult for them to know what the right price is from the right person. Because if you were, if you all had to pay exactly the same to get your car repaired in a car shop, sure, you could go to any car shop and it's going to cost exactly the same, it doesn't matter where you go, but some places are going to be better than others, there's going to be no way to discriminate you know, where the good one and the bad one is, and the people who are good are going to be too busy. You'll never be able to get into them because they can't discriminate based on price. They can't charge a premium for their service. And likewise, people who are lousy are going to get a lot more business than they should, where they should be empty, and they should have to charge half as much because they're so bad. But, you know, maybe some people, they just need an easy repair, and so even the bad repair shop can do the easy repair and so they can, you know, get by with less. But those decisions should be made by people, In this case, we're talking about health, which is, I think, really important, and with patients. But right now, patients don't have the ability to make decisions. And the people pushing this are multifactorial. So don't buy the fact that it's just the hospitals pushing this, or it's just physicians, or it's just these trade associations. The answer is it's all of them. It's all of them. If you have a problem with it, don't just take it up with a politician, because they're the last people you want to talk to to fix the problem. Because guess what? Their solution is always the same. It's always to use government force or regulatory ch- capture, change the scope of practice laws, have more fights over who gets paid or whatever. But it, ultimately, it's going to be exactly the same problem because until you control where your dollars go as a patient, you're going to have no control over the system. The only way you can fix this, the only way you can get re- introduce choice back into the system and allow yourself to have the opportunity to treat, have be treated the way you want to be treated is for you to control where your health care dollars go. So the only system that's going to ever work to fix medicine is one that fixes that problem. doesn't mean that a third-party pair system could never work because there are probably situations, I think one could envision, where it would make sense that you have someone who helps you make the decisions when it comes to, say, I don't know, purchasing, uh, you know, when you go to the ICU and you're not able to make decisions. But, Fundamentally, you have to be able to control the, where your money goes. If not, you are not in control. And the, any sort of control you think you have is an absolute illusion. That's why I think direct primary care is a great option. It's just one tiny little piece of the puzzle. But we have to be able to select how much we pay for certain procedures. And as long as we allow someone who is making decisions decision a long ways away and everyone's exactly the same, and this level of care is the same based on just level training, or now in this case, any sort of training, you're going to get levels of care that you may not like.
1: You're gonna have
0: less autonomy, and I'm concerned that people are going to be upset with how it works, and they're gonna look for solutions that are gonna be the opposite of what they should be looking for. So, why do I think choice is so important in this whole matter? I think it helps everybody. Not only does it help patients, because patients now can direct their money to the type of care, the level of care, who they want to give to, and what they what they need and what they value. For nurse practitioners, for physician assistants, you can continue to fight these scope of battle practices. Spend thousands, millions of dollars of your hard-earned money fighting these battles in every state legislature, fighting at the federal government level, fighting for regulatory changes at CMS, and you may win some battles. I don't doubt, I, you know, I don't, I don't deny that that's going to happen. And I think this executive order signed by uh, President Trump is going to absolutely help um, on some level. But if you want to have an independent practice, if you could suddenly charge whatever you want and operate independently, and people understand, patients understand, your level of training, your know, level of you know whatever you, you can do, then that's fine. Why would that not be best? And f- for physicians, don't be afraid of this. Why are you allowing yourself to be controlled by CMS to insist on continuing this and perpetuating this process, this or system that makes it all exactly the same? Like, we're just cogs, just widgets. We're not. We're individual people. We have some more skills, some less skills, more experience, less experience. Some are good, some are bad. Protecting our profession in the sense that you have to make everybody get paid exactly the same is the wrong way to go about things you have to accept the fact that what you have been fighting for is to have shackles put on your ankles allow patients to make these decisions prove to them that you're better prove to them that your training is worth something and they will come I don't I'm not worried about this I don't know why so many physicians are worried they're of the belief that if everyone had the option they would choose the cheapest option that is not the case if that was the case there would be nothing but McDonald's in town. If that was the case, there'd only be Target. But we know there are all sorts of different options when it comes to shopping, when it comes to restaurants, there's fine dining, it's all sorts in between. Not everybody drives a Ford Focus. Some people drive BMWs, some people drive old Chrysler Pacificas, case in point. It just depends on what you value and what you want. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. I think you can advocate for what you think is the right choice, you can advocate saying, it's important that you recognize that I've got levels of training and that, yeah, you're healthy, and usually the outcomes are fine, but would you want to have someone with more training to come take care of you? And for that training, you'll, be, you'll pay a premium over what the person down the street can offer for you. But allow patients to make the decision. Right now, the system is designed, so we're not allowed to make the decision. And so we're fighting over all these decisions controlled by politicians and bureaucrats in either state capitals or in the federal cap- capital. And this is a problem. How do you get that place? I'm not sure. But that is the fundamental problem. That is the problem that we're fighting. It is not when we should be f- directing our anger and angst towards nurse practitioners or physician assistants. If you're NPs and PAs, don't be mad at M- MDs. Yes, we are battling each other all the time for scope of practice under the guise of patient safety and saving money. But what we're ultimately fighting is a battle that is given to us by the politicians, by the bureaucrats in those capitals. They're the ones who give us a false choice. What we should be fighting for is allow patients make those decisions. So allow patients to have the ability to direct their money where they want it to go. If we allow that, we're going to fix a lot of these problems. So go out there and do the right thing, say the right thing, and advocate truly for physicians. Advocate for them to control where they go, how they spend their money. That's how we're going to get a better world. That's how we're going to take care of a lot of these disagreements. It's not by preventing each other from practicing. So thank you for listening. I hope I gave you something to think about. Please email me with your thoughts, your concerns. And remember when you're on social media, on Twitter, and 240 characters, don't forget the most important six-letter word, nuance. We're all brothers and sisters. Let's fight for real patient choice and professional choice. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.